Thank you all for coming. Oops. So I'm going to read from a prepared text, and then I will take your questions if you have them. Uh, because I'm the guy who wrote the book. I might be able to answer them. Um, this is from the introduction of True Homosexual Experiences, and it's called An Improbably Literate Hustler. Full of anticipation and unsure of what he's looking for, a young man enters an adult bookstore. Stepping through a creaky door bearing a warning sign, no minors, he heads for the magazine rack. Among the glossy, full-color porno magazines giving off a chemical smell, he sees a small, pamphlet-sized publication called Straight to Hell. The title recalls condemnations such as God hates fags, but at the same time suggests defiance. Anyone on the straight and narrow path can go to hell. The cover features an image of a naked man who looks nothing like a model and maybe an ex-convict. Not fabulous or campy, the booklet seems old-fashioned and homemade, the opposite of what the young man has been led to expect from gay culture. Inside the issue, there is a rhyming slogan in the masthead, love and... Love and hate for the American straight. Straight to Hell's visual style is immediately recognizable, yet anonymous, just like its contents. Lurid, tabloid-style headlines introduce texts contributed by the readers. They describe sex acts between men in different settings in various parts of the United States and the rest of the world. This comes as news to the young man. Homosexuality is not just confined to a few neighborhoods in big cities and is more or less, for lack of a better word, ordinary. The young man shoplifts the copy of Straight to Hell. I don't suggest you do that sort of thing here. And at home, he masturbates to the words and pictures. Though he doesn't realize it at first, this small booklet has changed his life. On one page, there is an address, a post office box in New York City where he can send orders for more issues and submit his own sex stories. Accompanying the address is a name, Boyd McDonald. McDonald, founding editor of Straight to Hell, was the main creative force behind one of the most distinctive underground publications, in fact, the first queer zine. Self-published and crude, Straight to Hell's sense of urgency was as strong as its contempt for authority. Fanzines and underground comics of the 1960s and early 1970s had combined these elements before, but none of them were devoted to homosexual material. From the 1950s onward, early gay publications, for example, One, The Homosexual Viewpoint, and Physique Pictorial, you had used the same format, the size of an 8.5 by 11 inch sheet of paper folded in half. But none of these prepared readers for Straight to Hell. The main difference from its predecessors was its attitude. The man who assembled this material just didn't give a damn about any recognized standard of taste. <laughs> Issues of Straight to Hell were illustrated with beefcake photographs and candid shots of men. Most were by Bob Miser of Athletic Model Guild or David Hurls of Old Reliable, but Straight to Hell also published many amateur photos sent in by subscribers. The unnamed men who contributed their stories came from all walks of life, barely literate to highly educated. Some were young, while others were old enough to remember the early years of the 20th century. They all had one thing in common, a need to write their accounts of their sexual exploits and share them with their fellow men. Boyd attached great importance to his undertaking. He once wrote, 
I consider this history not pornography. It's very serious work, the true history of homosexual desire and experience. Any gay publications that do not deal with the elemental discussion of gay sexual desire are not serious. They're frivolous. He collected sex stories from a multitude of men and kept his comments on them to a minimum. Boyd MacDonald reserved most of his editorial commentary for news items about the stupidity, hate, and warmongering of American politicians, and he illustrated them with unflattering photographs. Boyd knew how to spot a con artist, especially one who had wrapped himself in the flag. Boyd made his political... Made boy, excuse me. Boyd made his political opinions explicit, but he wrote about his personal life reluctantly. A brief account varying only slightly over the years became the basis of a compelling biographical myth. One author's bio from the early 1980s is typical. Boyd McDonald was born in South Dakota in 1925. I was a pioneer high school dropout, he writes, leaving school to play badly in a bad traveling dance band. I was drafted into the Army, graduated from Harvard, and came to New York, where my principal activity was taking advantage of the city's public sexual recreation facilities. As a sideline, I worked as a hack writer for Time Magazine, Forbes, IBM, and even more sordid companies. I started the magazine STH, Straight to Hell, the Manhattan Review of Unnatural Acts, later renamed the New York Review of Cocksucking. (laughs) He describes pillars of the establishment as sordid and sends up the New York Review of Books by replacing books with cocksucking, a clear statement of priorities. The text is found at the back of the second anthology of True Homosexual Experiences, drawn from the pages of Straight to Hell. Eventually, 13 STH collections came out from various publishers. They all had concise, direct titles. Meat, flesh, sex, cum, smut, juice, wads, cream, filth, skin, raunch, lewd, and scum. A number of proposed titles, bear, heat, hoses, sex hounds, sperm, stuff, tools, and used, remained unrealized at the time of Boyd's death in 1993. These books contain descriptions of how men look, act, walk, talk, dress, undress, taste, and smell. At first glance, Boyd's publications might appear indistinguishable from the many subsequent ones that copied Straight to Hell to less effect and acclaim. A careful reading of Straight to Hell reveals that its, edi- that its editor possessed a unique sensibility. His subversive wit graced every project on which he worked. Boyd had a reputation for being a curmudgeon, and beneath his polite, beneath his polite demeanor was a peer- fiercely individualistic anarchist. I interrupt this reading of my introduction to share with you a sample of the sort of text Boyd published in his books. The story is called Sucks Sailor's Scum from Youth's Butthole, and it is from Come, True Homosexual Experiences, published in 1982. I had to take a business trip to a southern state in which pornography is strictly illegal, Since when I'm home, I have the habit of cruising my favorite porno shop every Saturday morning and get regular action, I was expecting a boring, chaste week down south. However, just before entering that state, I noted a genuine adult bookstore and movie. 
Monday, I had appointments with three prospective customers and got to the porno shop about three in the afternoon. The manager appeared to be a little worried. He said six sailors were in the movie room, having stopped by on their way to the Gulf. They said, he said they had been cornholing a boy in the booth for over an hour. I said, what's wrong with that? It looks, sounds good to me. I asked if it was rape, and they said no. The kid begs for it. He said he knew the kid, and the kid's father was a judge in the next state. He said, this is the South, you know, and three of those sailors are black. I told him not to worry and went into the movie room. Three sailors, one white and two black, stood outside the movie booth. The door of the booth was closed, but I could hear fuck sounds. The big black sailor next to me had a huge bulge at his groin, and I reached over and felt it. He opened his pants and, I, and offered me his big, thick cock with a great plum-like head. Shamelessly, I went down on it right there in the movie room. Then the booth door opened and two sailors came out. One of the sailors said, how is he? And received the answer, all sloppy with cum. Then the black sailor pulled out of my mouth and said, how about you going in there and cleaning him up? He pushed me in the booth ahead of him. In the booth was a beautiful sight. The boy, who was probably about 19 years old, was completely naked except for a pair of white crew socks, his legs up in the air against the sailor's shoulders. The sailor who had pushed me, pushed me into the booth said, pull out, Tyrone, this dude is going to clean the cum out of that kid's ass so he won't be such a sloppy fuck next time. He pushed me in between the kid's ass cheeks. The kid's ass smelled like cock and mainly that chemical ammoniac smell of cum. I licked around his hole and it was loosened so much by getting laid that I could get my tongue well up inside. It was delicious to a cum hound like me. I got my tongue in there and lapped and slurped and had a ball. And now back to my introduction. <laughs> Excuse me, I need a drink. <laughs> in a recent biography, a bit of pleasure reading, I was struck by the phrase improbably literate hustler, the kind of expression that brings to mind Victorian pieties like a whore with a heart, with, with a heart of gold. The writer's assumption, presumably shared by many of his readers, is that for a biography to, import, to impart the greatest moral edification, the subject should be respectable, educated, and not a whore, or filthy, not educated, and a whore. The former type of subject serves for inspirational purposes. Someone just like me has succeeded. The latter, for cautionary tales, someone I wouldn't want to be has failed. The subject who confounds these categories poses difficulties, either when educated and a whore, i.e. unable to act in his or her best interests, a mentally ill person, or not educated and not a whore, i.e. childlike, unyielding, and, uns and inscrutable, a saint. The homosexual, tradi traditionally considered mentally ill until fairly recently in the United States, can disturb these comforting habits of mind. The suspicion that educated men were enjoying the company of hustlers when they weren't toiling at their respectable jobs did not occur to the benighted American majority until the latter half of the 1960s, if then. 
With the arrival of AIDS in the U.S., an alarming number of homosexuals became physically ill, and the signs were unavoidable. Uninhibited fraternizing between men of different ethnic groups and social classes had been taking place, often in public and even in broad daylight, for many years. Then AIDS killed all the really interesting people, and a group of jealous perverts who appointed themselves defenders of the American way of life unleashed a backlash. Those who came into this world after the worst years of the AIDS crisis may imagine that the moral panic is a thing of the past, like the witch trial. But anyone who lived through that time knows that moral entrepreneurs, when they aren't occupied with stealing money and spending it on hustlers and drugs, are always looking for new excuses to spring into action. The American Puritanism nurturing moral panics also dictates that those with a sexual role in society, prostitutes, pornographers, promiscuous amateurs, cannot be taken seriously as artists. Discounting their work is an example of stereotypical thinking, the mob mentality enforcing conformity. Gay artists who really risked something, usually called erotic artists when not being prosecuted for obscenity, pandering, or endangering children, have only recently gained some credibility in American culture, for example, books published and art exhibited. Considering the joyous recklessness of their lives, the erratic quality of medical care for any but the privileged in this country, and that their generation was already decimated by AIDS, they have come to seem like combat veterans, but without medals because, instead of foreign enemies, they have been fighting the prejudice, pettiness, and hypocrisy of American society. They have sacrificed everything so the rest of us can see photographs of naked thugs experience vicariously the kind of sex sensible people hesitate to seek out and read stories of their colorful lives in explicit detail. Some of them contributed to straight to hell. A few are still alive today. They deserve our respect and admiration. Almost infantile in its defiance and not acknowledging the boundaries between public and private, straight to hell is easy to dismiss as the work of an obsessive crank, yet within its pages enduring truths can be found. Anyone can see this stuff is trash, but somehow it has never gone away either. Excuse me, it has never gone away. That is because the social ills straight to hell diagnoses have never gone away either. As long as brain and genitals must coexist in the same body, in other words, as long as we are human, we must reckon with Boyd McDonald and his inconvenient messages. Thank you. So that's the opening polemic of the book. Um, if you have any questions about Boyd or my research into his life and works, please ask them now. And don't be shy. Yes? Well, so what did you find out about Boyd Mental other than... Uh, well, I, you know, read the book. Um, do you have a specific question about Boyd you'd like me to answer? Um, no, I was just wondering. He was a very private person, it's true, but he did have friends, and he did have a family. And I tracked down both his friends and his family and found out all sorts of things about him. He also, excuse me? He is no longer with us. 
A boy died in 1993 of emphysema. He was a chain smoker. Let this be a lesson. Um, but yeah, he, he was very private, but um, he let things slip in his writings. I really combed his writings for autobiographical details, and there are a fair number of them that you can piece together with testimony from people he knew and, and you know, get a portrait of, of Boyd. Not a complete one. They're, they're, he, was, he was a very serious drinker for many years, and uh, he had what I call a lost decade. Uh, there's about 10 years that we don't really know much about. But um, it was a kind of conversion story. He stopped drinking, and he went on welfare, and he moved into a single-room occupancy hotel, and he completely changed his life. Uh, and he started the magazine that we know and love. After sobering up. That's when he did what he wanted to do all along. That's when he meant business. When he was working for Time and other jerk-off companies like that, that's when he was a drunk. Because he was miserable. Yeah. And it was a one-man shop. Um, it was a one-man shop until about 1981. <laughs> Uh, 1981 was when he started publishing the anthologies based upon Straight to Hell, the ones whose the titles of which I, I read, um, and he decided to concentrate on those books. And he handed the editing over to a young guy named Victor Weaver, who edited Straight to Hell for about eight years, uh, and then he quit. And it was handed over once again to Billy Miller, who's currently editing Straight to Hell, and the current issue is on the shelf in the bookstore now. Um, at the beginning, it was a very uh, crude publication. It was just mimeographed sheets. Uh, and little by little, it became more sophisticated, more expensive to produce, and its pub its uh, circulation became quite large. Uh, in the early 80s, when Victor Weaver took over, its its circulation was 20,000 copies per issue, which is quite impressive. Yes? How did he distribute it when he started it? Where did it sort of become when one of the early issues I discovered in the in the masthead, this is available at five bookstores, and it was all dirty bookstores in New York City, uh, and that was 1973, uh, and it just grew from there. Uh, gay gay bookstores, which were really just beginning around that time, uh, some of them really loved Straight to Hell, others denounced it and didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, but but it did. He also he had a very serious mailing list of people who were not only buying the issues but were contributing stories, and he carried on involved correspondences with many many men all over the world. Uh, so it was it was you know quite a, quite a thing that he he managed to cultivate from very humble beginnings. Yes. Uh, about how. Do you, do you know about how many stories were collected over what period of time? And there's no way to, to really know, but uh, is there a sense of the authenticity as opposed to guys just completely making up their own fantasies? Well, this is one of the most important issues that I tackle in the book, uh, the veracity of these stories. Uh, he collected stories for 20 years. He started Straight to Hell in 1973, and he died in 93. And um, he had many, many stories. People assumed that he had made them up 
you know, like the the guy who ran the Oscar Wilde bookshop in New York City was his enemy and thought, this is all made up, this is all fiction. But someone I interviewed who interviewed him for The Advocate in 1981 visited him at his room. And Boyd said, oh, you want to see the letters? And he opened up his closet and out came tumbling bags and bags of letters written in you know, crayon, some of them. Some of them were typed. Some of them were on fancy stationery. Others were just scrawled on, on just the cheapest paper. Every kind of handwriting and style you can imagine, and they were all there. So, you know, a number of people have attested to the authenticity of the letters. Um, Boyd had certain standards that he applied to the texts to verify their authenticity. They were not fail-safe. But something that's important to keep in mind is that around the time that uh, Straight to Hell was founded, commercial pornography started to become more and more legal in the United States. It was the, it was the year of Miller versus California, which was the landmark porno decision by the Supreme Court. So it became a going concern to have commercial porno in the U.S., at least in certain jurisdictions. And um, he started to look for the signs that people were making porno stories. Uh, and he, he, it was his notion that if anything was too perfect, you know, the cocks were too big, the sex was too slick and perfectly arranged, it wasn't true. He looked for the idiosyncrasies, the mistakes, the clumsy fumblings of real sexual activity. People admitting things that were, that were you know, not perfect. Um, he also said, you know, any hack writer can be coherent. I'm interested in these stories that kind of ramble. They end at unconventional places. They, they don't read like commercial fiction. Uh, and that's how he, he, that was his standard for determining things. Um, and I should also say that, you know, he developed epistolary relationships with men over many years. And if you look closely, you can see that certain correspondence recur over the, over the books. And uh, they tell virtually their entire life stories to Boyd. And it's really touching. And I take that all as authentic. You know, these guys are basically, this, this is their forum for saying what their lives were like and what their sex was like. Uh, so to me, this is really valuable historical information. Yeah. How much did like, his family know about, about the publication? I have to drink before I answer that question. Um, he had a stock answer for that question. Uh, people would say, how can you do such a thing? And he said, because my mother died. Um, his family knew nothing during his lifetime. Uh, and that's the way he wanted it. And he, he had a very good way of talking about this. He was very articulate about a distinction he made between homosexuality and gayness. He said, a family has... Usually, if a family is sort of civilized and with it, they have no trouble with gayness. You know, you can say I'm gay, and it doesn't really mean anything to them. You talk about the specifics of what you do with other men, and they get very uncomfortable. And that was the way he thought about things, that, you know, he didn't want... He wanted to shield them from the details of all the anatomy and the smells and the tastes and all of that stuff. And, and that was probably a, a good thing for him, but um, it had an unfortunate 
result, which is that, for instance, his sister, with whom he was rather close, had no clue he was gay. Uh, after his death, he said to Billy Miller, or she said to Billy Miller, they say Boyd was a homosexual. Is that true? <laughs> you know, he was the homosexual. <laughs> and she had no idea. So after his death, his sister and one of her daughters came to his single room and cleaned everything out and threw it away. Uh, And it was partly because they didn't understand the importance of it, and it was partly because they were mourning this relative that they loved, but it was also that they were completely shocked by what what they had found. And I, I... I'll, in parentheses, I'll say something that I didn't put in the book, but I had a long discussion about Boyd with John Waters. And uh, I said to John Waters, well, you know, the family was very shocked. And he interrupted me. He said, because it is shocking. <laughs> it, it's the way you put it, which I do put in the book. It's as though the New York Post did porno. They had these, I mean, all the stories had these really lurid titles you know, like suck sailors, sailors, was it suck sailor scum from youth's, youth's butthole? That's typical of, of the kind of story titles he came up with. And then, and then, you know, as raunchy as possible. Even today, it's shocking on some level. And I would also add that we had trouble with getting the book printed and shipped because of its contents. Uh, we printed in China, and the printing went just fine, but the shipping was a nightmare. Uh, the Chinese said, we're not shipping this because, as they put it, it shows too much of the human body, which is a lovely way of putting it. Uh, but we, we eventually got the shipment transferred to uh, Hong Kong, but it delayed the book by about three weeks, which makes me sad, but it's finally here. It exists. You can buy it. Uh, but, you know, it's so even today, Boyd's work is causing some problems. Yeah, you can ask one more question if you want. Um, can you talk a little bit? You were saying that the early gay bookstores, like some of them really hated his publication. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, like, why he was controversial, even, like, in the gay community at the time? Yeah, um, Boyd... He, it was his position that to be a gay politician, to be a gay liberationist, you had to be a kind of eunuch. You had to present yourself to the world as a eunuch. You couldn't talk about the, you couldn't talk about the specifics of your sex life. All you could do is say, I'm gay. And it was a real effort of legitimation. You know, you present a sanitized version and maybe people will like us. And he wasn't interested in that at all. He wanted things to be as dirty and raunchy and detailed as possible. So anybody who was interested in a kind of liberationist line held Boyd in some skepticism. Uh, And that was a rift that I think now looks slightly ludicrous to us because we live in different times. But at the time, it was really quite serious. Uh, He was a radical political guy. I mean, you know, a lot of the writing is very pointed satire about conservative politicians. And it's all factual, and it's really quite amazing. 
Uh, so he was a radical political guy, but he was also not interested in the more fatuous aspects of liberation politics. Uh, and if I can just say in parentheses again, I really sometimes wish Boyd were still alive today. Um, I, I can remind you that Donald Trump's first lawyer was Roy Cohn, whom I mention in the book. Boyd said he gave Dick Licking a bad name. You find out a little about Roy Cohn and you'll know exactly what I just said. Uh, and then, of course, we have Dennis Hastert, the former... Uh, he was sentenced, I think, only today, the former Speaker of the House. And uh, this is the sort of thing Boyd would have taken and run with. And I, it's a shame he's not still around. Because that's the media I'd be interested in reading on my iPhone. <laughs> yeah. How did you discover Fifth Holland Boyd? What was your story with that? Um... I was sort of a latecomer. The, the story I read at the beginning, which is part of the introduction, is not really my story. It was a story that a friend told me about discovering Straight to Hell in Athens, Georgia. And it was so sort of touching, I thought, okay, well, he'll be a young man and I'll write about that. I actually discovered Boyd through the queer zine scene uh, in the early 90s, which I was kind of a part of in, in Los Angeles then. And uh, I wasn't actively producing zines, but all those people were my friends. And I saw all their book collections. And that's when I discovered Boyd. So I discovered him really at the end of his life. And I didn't make a personal connection to him, unfortunately. Uh, so my story of how dis I discovered it isn't terribly glamorous, but that's, that's what happened. Yeah? What do you think there was in his sobriety that led him to liberation? One thing I should mention is that Boyd, to my knowledge, stopped drinking in 1968 and never had a relapse. He never drank again. And he would even go so far as entertaining guests with bottles of vodka, and he would not partake at all. So he was... Uh, someone who was incredibly strong, absolutely implacable in his work. And I think it takes sobriety to be that, to do that. Um, there's something, something so obsessive and so strong about him. He's almost not human because it's just this relentless project that he was engaged in with great fervor. And he never faltered at all. And I think that kind of maniacal energy is what made him a sober person. Exactly. Exactly. And he was prey to many obsessions. That became the one that was productive. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love the story in the beginning. It's like a lot of people. I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We had a friend that would go to New York and collect little stacks of SDH. And... Uh, it was a decadent, decadent, you know, uh, obsession of ours when this had come in. But none of us dared to get a subscription. Right? I mean, we were under, that was 1980 when I came out. And, um, I mean, we wouldn't even want this coming to the mail because we're, I, no, you know, you didn't want it. Mm -hmm. we, we had to escort each other into the gay bar. Mm -hmm. 
Mark Lester beat up. And um, so this sitting, I mean, we would sit and read it together and have like a little orgy, a little boy orgy. It was great, but it was so raunchy. And I think that was part of the decadence for us. Yeah. I, mean, it just, I was talking to my friend Les about this just before we started tonight, and I thought, this is the product of centuries of repression. And, and God, I'm so happy that you did this. I can't wait to read your book, your articulation of, of everything I've been thinking about this whole thing. But uh, what I wanted to, uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of Larry Kramer. I just wonder if they knew each other. It's interesting you bring up Larry Kramer because um, he had a very different experience from Larry Kramer. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Larry Kramer went to Yale, and while he was at college, he was convinced that he was the only gay guy on campus, and he attempted suicide. Boyd had a very different experience a couple of years earlier at Harvard. And he really, he was part of a very active underground scene of guys having sex, often with the football team. You know, it was really quite amazing. Uh, And there were guys who had been in World War II and went to to Harvard on the GI Bill, and they weren't taking any shit from anyone. I mean, they'd already risked their lives. What did they have to lose? And so the administration didn't have them cowed. And so they were holding orgies in the houses at Harvard. Um, and this is, this is something I print in its entirety in the book, is this amazing anonymous story about sex, at, gay sex at Harvard uh, in, I think it was the class of 1949. Uh, so it was, a great, it was a great moment for him for sex. And, and he, he does when he refers to his college education, he says, oh, yeah, it was anything goes, and there was really no problem or guilt or anything. I mean, it was, we were not open to the rest of the world or even to the university, but among ourselves, anything went, and it was a boy orgy. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah he, that's, that was an important aspect of his formation, which you'll read about in the book. Yes? Just a comment. Uh, you may know the famous uh, Yale football uh, yell, knit uh, one pearl to Yale Harvard, but was a sort of mock on the, the uh, assuming the kind of hypermasculinity of the Yaleys against the effeteness of the Harvard uh, crowd. Yeah. So this was part of the. Uh, it's nothing I'm proud of because I have to confess I'm an alumnus of Yale. And uh, reading about Boyd's early life, I have to say I was quite jealous. But uh, this is still this is somewhat controversial because I haven't gotten enough testimony to say definitive, definitively whether Larry Kramer's experience of feeling totally isolated at Yale was typical. Uh, because for all I know, there was, you know, in one of the other residential colleges, maybe there were orgies going on. We can hope. Anyway, sorry, any other? Oh, yes. Uh, as far as research material or doing interviews, uh, was it pretty New York-centric, or did you find yourself going anywhere far-flung, either to track people down or materials down? Well, a couple of things I can say about that. One is, in this day and age, you don't have to travel anywhere to interview people. Email and Skype are wonderful for that. Uh, So my budget was tiny. Uh, 
the other thing that's really wonderful is the largest gay and lesbian archive in the world is in Los Angeles at USC, the One Archives. And I did a lot of work there. I did work on my um, Fred Halstead book five years ago at the One. And since then, they've acquired a lot more material. And I was able to consult virtually every issue of Straight to Hell in their collection. Uh, so, So that's... You know, we should consider ourselves lucky. Consider ourselves lucky we live here because that collection is just around the corner, uh, and so so I really didn't have to travel to to write the book. Um, and and the people, a lot of the people he knew are still in New York. Uh, his his niece that really was a great informant for the book, not the one who threw out the papers, but the other niece who really, really adored her uncle. Uh, she's living in upstate New York now. Uh, but, but a lot of the people who were involved with, with uh, Boyd are still in the metropolitan area of New York City. Yeah. Are there any conclusions that even if it's anecdotal that can be sort of extrapolated from all of this about uh, men having sex with men who don't identify themselves as gay. Yeah. A certain percentage, the Jazz report, you know, says 22% of all men have same-sex experience. <clears throat> I think technology has changed things. I think, you know, these apps people have on their phone, they've, they've opened things up sexually in ways that we have not yet understood. So I'm going to refrain from commenting on that. Uh, but, you know, Boyd was an old school queen. You know, he identified as gay and he was interested in men who identified as straight. For, for him and for most of his contemporaries, they were the most desirable sex partners. And um, so it's a very ambivalent statement about sexuality you make because on one hand... You know, before liberation, it's tremendously exciting and forbidden and dirty. On the other hand, liberation has given us other opportunities. Um, and, and even though Boyd in the zine and in the books come, comes across as a bit, perhaps a little bit um, uh, dogmatic on his anti-liberation stance, in person, he was inter- I have a video interview of him. By the way, there are Boyd McDonald papers at the Cornell University Library as well. And they had a video interview with him conducted a few years before he died. And, uh, and he, he acknowledged that actually gay liberation had done some really valuable things to make all of our lives better. The specific thing he mentioned that was really interesting is that he, you know, he, this is from his experience at Time Life. If you're gay and it's a secret, everybody in the workplace has power over you because you've got something to hide. But the moment it comes out, they don't have anything on you. And you can really function as equals in the workplace. Unless, of course, you've got other things you're hiding. But, um, you know, and, and he, so this, this situation, it's, I mean, I don't want to recapitulate the entire contents of the book, but it's quite a lot of, of what the book is about. Uh, this sensibility of the pre-liberation sex. Um, and I wouldn't advocate turning back the advances of gay liberation for one minute. On the other hand, I do think that maybe some of these sex stories are an interesting indication for young'uns. And maybe this is a way you can have fun. Thank you.
You can have your own boy orgy, and maybe my biography can inspire it. <laughs> so, so he was publishing basically between 73 and 93. Yeah. But many of the stories are from really an earlier time. Just by chance or, or by design? The, the, you, if you read a lot of these things, the main discursive mode is nostalgic. People are talking about their youths. They're talking about before liberation. They're talking about some time in the past. Like, this was the most exciting sex I ever had. You know, like some garage mechanic spread eagled on a car or whatever, you know, some Canadian Mountie pulling down his pants and then it's all in there. Um, so it's, it's very much about memory and nostalgia. Um, but really some very interesting historical material comes out, so to speak. Uh, there was one guy who wrote extensively about his great uncle and the stories dated from the time that the New York City subway system was built which is the turn of the last century. So it's incredibly valuable that there's this document of stuff going on from well over 100 years ago. So it really is a good deal. It is a window pre-69. Huh? Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's for me part... Uh, that's part of why I wrote the book, but it's, it's uh, I think, also part of why Boyd did the project. He was interested in making a historical record of all of these true homosexual experiences. I often thought in one way it was easier to hide because it wasn't in everybody's consciousness. Well, that's for sure. You thought about it, and so you could do things that today would draw attention to oneself. Yeah, everyone's looking for the signs now. Back then, only the hip people were looking for the signs. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, if you want to hide, you've got to do other things. But I won't belabor that point. You can think about that on your own. Anything? Oh, anybody else who hasn't asked a question have something to say? All right, go ahead. Well, so you've done this research, and you wrote a book, and you're a filmmaker. Well, the next, next natural extension. <laughs> uh it doesn't always work that way. I, I, uh, one of the reasons I write the book, uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that I was completely broke. Uh, and writing a book is cheap. I got to hide away in my apartment and get books from the library and contact people by email and go to the One Archives. Uh, so it was actually, it was a very austere existence I was living. Some were drawing connections between myself and Boyd McDonald in his little room living on welfare. Uh, so, that, you know, I had a sense of the kind of life he was living. And, you know, with that little money, unfortunately, it's not possible to make a film. Uh, but, you know, I have, and also I do a lot of work and I've moved on to other projects. So I'm afraid the film about Boyd McDonald is not to be made by me in the near future. Which is fine. I mean, you know, I wrote a book. I guess I, I'm going to end my talk with the phrase, I wrote a book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. 
Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.